History is the most important subject that you can study. And if you can't see what's happening in the past, you can't look nearly as far in the future. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Men will still say, this was a final. This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. The writing was on the wall for Judah. The only question was, when was the destruction coming? After Hezekiah's mistake, God told him through Isaiah that his descendants and his wealth would be carried away to Babylon. But God is a merciful God, and just like he delayed Hezekiah's death, he could always put a pause on the countdown towards punishment on Judah, if the king and the people turned to him. But after Hezekiah died, his young son Manasseh inherited the throne and Judah got someone who will go down as one of the most evil kings in their entire history. He was 12 when he took over the throne and he and his court went in the exact opposite direction as his father. He reversed all of Hezekiah's work in cleansing the land of idolatry. He built altars for Baal, made a grove to worship all the pagan gods and built altars in the temple of God which had to be one of the greatest ways to affront God. Here's what's recorded in the 21st chapter of the second book of Kings. And he, Manasseh, did that which was evil in the sight of the eternal, after the abominations of the heathen, whom the eternal cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up an altar for Baal, and made a grove, as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the eternal. And he made his son to pass through fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the eternal to provoke him to anger. There's a lot wrapped up here, especially in the last verse. Manasseh passed his son through fire, which means he sacrificed his child by burning him in fire. This is, by the way, what his grandfather also did and had to be one of the worst, if not the worst, aspects of the pagan religion that surrounded Judah. This is a practice the Israelites had picked up from the Phoenicians, who had major cities nearby and were known for child sacrifice. Archaeologists have found burial grounds near different Phoenician cities containing urns that were filled with the bones of many children. And in those grounds are stone markers that mark these grounds with inscriptions that declare offerings to Baal or Moloch and other gods. Apparently, they would throw the children into the fire while they were still alive while playing loud percussion heavy music so their little screams could be drowned out. The practice of sacrificing children was so despicable that some archaeologists have such a difficult time believing it, they've even tried to debunk it. But there's just too much historical proof to think otherwise. Manasseh was so steeped in pagan culture, he sacrificed his own child, and no doubt others would have followed his example. What a quick slide into degeneracy and evil this was. 
And the Bible is clear about the evil. It records, Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Eternal destroyed before the children of Israel. So he was more evil than the people that God destroyed when he gave them the promised land. Jewish tradition records that Manasseh had Isaiah, the prophet, killed. Remember, Isaiah was the prophet that helped Hezekiah face down the Assyrians and helped lead Judah to God and freedom. But he spoke out against Manasseh's actions, and as a result, Manasseh had him sawn in half. And remember, Jewish tradition states that this was actually Manasseh's grandfather. Manasseh was killing multiple generations of his family. Here's what the Bible says. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. That's quite the description. Needless to say, God was angry about all this, and he warned Judah during Manasseh's reign through the prophets, and that warning was recorded in 2 Kings. Quote, Therefore, thus says the eternal God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever hears of it, both his ears shall tingle. End quote. Your ears will tingle when you hear it, meaning quiver or shake with such strong emotion. And then in this warning, God gives a very descriptive analogy. God says, quote, I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. End quote. So there's something you can think about next time you wipe some dishes or see someone cleaning up the dishes. Now, God didn't send the Babylonians to Jerusalem yet, even though this was one of the most evil periods in Judah's history. In fact, the Babylonians were recovering from a murderous attack on their city. And I covered that in the end of the last episode in the series. Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, had faced another rebellion from Babylon, who this time allied with the Elamites. In that rebellion, Sennacherib's son, whom he placed as king of Babylon, was killed by the Elamites. And partially in retaliation to the killing of his son and, of course, the rebellion, he sacked Babylon and gave it the full Assyrian treatment. After quelling the rebellion in which he crushed the Elamites, he gave his troops freedom to sack and plunder Babylon as they wanted to. And he even deliberately flooded the city. Here's what a record of Sennacherib records. Quote, I made its destruction more complete than that by a flood, that in days to come the site of that city and its temples and gods might not be remembered. I completely blotted it out with floods of water and made it like a meadow. End quote. When Sennacherib destroyed the temples and idols of Babylon, he actually spared the idol of Marduk and took it captive in Assyria. Marduk was the patron god of Babylon and the supreme god for much of Mesopotamia in their pantheon of hundreds of gods. And Sennacherib began to try to replace Marduk with the Assyrian god Asher the patron god of Assyria. In Babylon, not having the idol of Marduk meant there could be no New Year celebration, so the whole religious calendar and their pagan worship would be thrown off by the fact that Sennacherib took that idol captive. And the city, of course, in their belief, would be cursed and wide open to chaotic events. So when Sennacherib did this, he made some kind of religious propaganda explaining why he took Marduk captive. It included making a new creation myth to explain why Asher was now the prominent and eminent god. He even built new temples for Asher in Nineveh, the current Assyrian capital, and Asher, 
the previous Assyrian capital that shares the same name of their patron god, and he constructed it in the very pattern of the Temple of Marduk in Babylon. He even brought in dirt and rubble from Babylon, put it into the new temples to symbolize how Babylon was being replaced and Marduk as well. This, of course, as you would expect, would upset many of the people of Mesopotamia, anyone who was virtually not Assyrian. You don't want to mess with their pantheon. But at the same time, Sennacherib was trying to solve a difficult problem, Babylon's continuous rebellion. He was trying to break them politically and religiously, and unfortunately for him, he wasn't going to see whether or not his policy would work because he was murdered by his sons. Adremelech and Cherezer. There was a letter discovered in which Sennacherib was actually warned by some of his officials that Adramelech was going to kill him. But evidently, Sennacherib didn't take it seriously enough because Adramelech and his brother were able to do that. They stabbed him with a sword while he worshipped in the temple. That has to be an especially symbolic way for Sennacherib to die, I think. To be murdered while worshipping in a temple was an insult added to a fatal injury. The gods no longer favor you, the sons were saying. And after the destruction of his army, his 185,000-man army in Jerusalem, it's hard to deny. Of course, if you were a pagan living in Mesopotamia, you might think it was just divine justice for how he treated the gods of Mesopotamia. He was another foreign king to meet a grisly end when he took Marduk captive. Sennacherib's sons fled, and another one of his sons, Isardun, became king of Assyria. Now, Isardun was appointed heir by Sennacherib before he died, and this actually meant that Sennacherib passed up several older sons, including Adrimelech, who would have been next in line after his older brother had been killed by the Elamites. So you can see Adrimelech had some motive here to kill Sennacherib in trying to basically seize the throne. Not only was Isardun the youngest son of Sennacherib, he was actually a son of a concubine, not even an official queen. So that was even more galling to the other sons of Sennacherib. And Isardun would have had to survive a lot of intrigue from the royal court and fight for the throne if he was going to keep it, which he did. It took six weeks of civil war against the Drimlik, but Isardun won. And so there's proof in a military-based society that Sennacherib actually picked the right heir. He picked the winner. There are some artifacts, notably a clay prism, that have been discovered from Esardun's reign that mention Manasseh, the king of Judah that we've just been talking about. And it's clear that Manasseh paid Assyria tribute, which was a step backward for the kingdom of Judah since Hezekiah had stopped paying any tribute. And there's no history as to why that's been recorded, so we don't know exactly why he did that. Although we know as an evil king, he would not have been trusting in God, so maybe he thought that this tribute would keep his kingdom secure from the Assyrians. The artifact named Manasseh as the king of Judah, who also contributed troops for an Assyrian invasion into Egypt. So it wasn't just about money, but Manasseh was also giving military support by giving men to the Assyrian army. Now, this tribute and this situation, it really highlights the difficult geopolitical situation Judah was in, sandwiched between two powers at the time, Assyria and Egypt. 
always having to navigate diplomatically between these two powers. And at this time, though, he was firmly in the Assyrian orbit. But a bad decision could mean an invasion or destruction of cities. Of course, when earlier Judean kings relied on God, they were able to stay independent like Hezekiah. But these later kings that we're going to be covering, you don't see that. And even with God sending prophets to tell them what to do, many of these kings refused to do so. And really, in this kind of situation, you would absolutely need God to guide you because it's just very difficult to know. At some point, though, there was a break in relations between Judah and Assyria. And we don't know exactly if this was with Isardon or the next Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. But at some point, the Assyrian king sent some elite troops to Jerusalem and they kidnapped Manasseh. They carried him all the way to Babylon. Second Chronicles 33 verse 11 states this, quote, Wherefore the Eternal brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon, end quote. Now this translation is a little hard to understand, but I read this article on Watch Jerusalem, uh, a website that I'll uh, put in the show notes here. And that article stated that among the thorns is a phrase that actually means to lead by hooks. So Manasseh was placed in fetters, which were basically metal chains that cuffed the leg. And in that case, then for him to go to Babylon, he would have to shuffle in order to walk. And on top of that, he was led by hooks that would have been run through either his nose or his mouth. And there's actually a victory steel or a stone column belonging to Isardon, and it dates to this time period of Manasseh and his reign around 670 BCE. And it depicts the king, uh, Isardon, in a large relief standing over two conquered kings, held captive by him with the rope that is hooked through, in this case, the victim's lips. So it's pretty interesting to see that uh, recorded in this history that the Bible speaks of being highly accurate. The article is very interesting. It actually speculates that one of those kings depicted on that steel is Manasseh, if it did in fact happen during Isardon's reign. And I'll put a link once again for that article so you can read it. It's pretty incredible, I think. Now, why did Manasseh get sent to Babylon? That's an interesting question, right? Because we just saw that Babylon got sacked and flooded and was destroyed. But now Babylon was back on the rise, and that's because Isardon reversed his father's policy towards Babylon. He actually started to rebuild the city, rebuild its gates and its temples. He even rebuilt the temple of Marduk, which is called Isagila, and the huge ziggurat, that uh, step stone pyramid structure in the middle called Etimenanki, which was also tied to Marduk. So you can see that Isardon, in trying to gain peace with Babylon, was restoring the pantheon of Mesopotamia and was trying to appease the Babylonians by helping to rebuild the city. Babylon, in other words, was back. Now, if you were Manasseh, you would have known about the prophecies given to Hezekiah and the fact that he was back in Babylon, not in an Assyrian city, not in Nineveh, would definitely help him recall those prophecies. 
and make him think that it's actually being fulfilled, at least in part. He is in Babylon, captive. And now his sons, based on that prophecy, and all his wealth would be next. And so, no doubt in thinking about that, Manasseh did what anyone reading the biblical account would have never guessed possible or likely. Manasseh actually repented. Here's what the Bible records, quote, And when Manasseh was in affliction, he besought the Eternal his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, end quote. And God responded. And what a great and powerful story of repentance this is. Remember, this was the king who caused Judah to sin greatly, worse than previous kings. This was the king who murdered his own child in sacrifice and murdered his own grandfather and filled the city of Jerusalem with blood, the blood of the innocent. And even then, when he repented, God still responded. And as a result, Manasseh was released and free to go back to Jerusalem. And when he did, he began to clean up his paganism, although it's clear at this point that the people did not respond to his leadership, either because they were so steeped in the paganism that Manasseh had set up, or perhaps his time spent in captivity weakened Manasseh's influence with the people so that a lot of it was ignored. Still, though, he cleaned up the temple and removed the pagan worship there. You can even get a sense of the trauma Manasseh must have felt when he got kidnapped because he also built another wall around Jerusalem, specifically by the city of David, making it taller than the other walls and posted centuries. So he's making sure it never happens again. Now, if you were a skeptical Jew, let's say, didn't believe the prophets, a little more carnal in your thinking, you'd probably start to think the fact that Manasseh was put in captivity in Babylon, but then released and came back, would be evidence that the prophecies weren't true. That, in fact, this wasn't a story of God's mercy to the repentant. It was just the fact that the warnings from Isaiah and other prophets weren't going to come to pass. And so some of these people in Jerusalem, some of the leadership, continued in their evil ways. Manasseh died and the new king was Ammon, who was evil as well. And you can see how the Jews were degenerating under this poor leadership of Manasseh and Ammon because Ammon reversed Manasseh's end-of-life changes here. He brought the nation back into paganism, but he only lasted two years. We don't know exactly why, but his servants assassinated him. No doubt this was some effect or result of Ammon's evil ways and also probably the corruption of the people as well. The leaders of Jerusalem were outraged. They hunted down all those involved in Ammon's murder and killed all of them. And in his stead, they made his young son, Josiah, who was only eight years old, king of Judah. And this would have been in 640 BCE. Josiah was a righteous king, one of the most righteous, in fact. He sought God's ways, and when he was 20 years old, 12 years into his reign, he started ripping the idolatry out of Judah and even all the way north into Israel. He started by repairing the temple and restoring it. And this, you see, happens often with righteous kings because the previous evil kings have either plundered the temple or set up pagan altars there or let it go into disrepair. 
So when a righteous king inherits the throne, it was one of the most important and first tasks for them to clean up the temple, remove the paganism, and restore it to its former glory. When he had God's temple cleaned up, a copy of the book of the law was found, the first five books of the Bible. And when it was read to him, Josiah became even more zealous to do God's will and keep God's law. He had the high priest Hilkiah go to Huldah, a prophetess, to inquire about what was written in the book of the law. You see, Josiah believed what he read and heard. He believed God's word. And in that word, there was talk about punishment for breaking God's law. So Josiah wanted to know what was going to happen. The Bible records Josiah telling the high priest this, quote, Go you, inquire of the eternal for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the eternal that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto all that which is written concerning us, end quote. Finally, the people got a king who was concerned about God's warnings. If you were a Jew who believed in the prophecies, this is the king that you've been praying for for decades. Here's the answer that God gave Josiah, quote, Thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. End quote. So God is a being of his word. And there were consequences for what the kings and the people had done. But then God says this, which would have been some of the greatest revelation given to Judah at the time. Quote, But to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the eternal, thus shall you say to him, thus says the eternal God of Israel, as touching the works which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you have humbled yourself before the eternal, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse and have rent your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Eternal. Behold, therefore, I will gather you unto your fathers and you shall be gathered unto your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all that evil which I will bring upon this place. End quote. Here was a wonderful promise, a time of delay. The pause button was pushed on the countdown towards destruction for Judah. And what's interesting here, of course, is that implied in this promise is that if Judah's kings continued to turn to God and turn the people to God, that delay could be extended. So how did they respond? Well, Josiah definitely responded to the revelation because after all that, in reading the book of the law, you see an extra effort to clean up the paganism from Judah. He not only took away the pagan religion away, he made sure that the book of the law was taught to the people. And not only that, but he went into Israel and cleaned up the paganism there as best as he could. All over Judah and Israel, he killed every pagan priest he could find and burned their bones on those pagan altars. He even took out the buried bones of pagan priests of Israel and burned those bones on their altars which is incredible because this was actually prophesied 360 years before it happened. Right, in fact, when Israel split into the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, an unnamed prophet prophesied to the first king of Israel, Jeroboam, that a future king, Josiah, would do this. And it's really neat 
that Josiah would have known these prophecies. Here's what the Bible records, quote, Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made both that altar and the high place he broke down and burned the high place and stamped it small to powder and burned the grove. And as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchers that were there in the mountain, sent and took the bones out of the sepulchers and burned them upon the altar and polluted it, according to the word of the Eternal, which the man of God proclaimed. Then he said, What title is that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the sepulcher of the man of God, which came from Judah and proclaimed these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel. End quote. And that's recorded in Second Kings there. So that's how you know Josiah truly believed God's prophecies. He knew what he had to do and he fulfilled it. And if you're living in Judah at this time, you would have felt pretty secure. A 360-year-old prophecy was fulfilled. Another prophecy was given about peace as long as Josiah was alive. And on top of that, Josiah was still a young man. So you would expect many years of peace and prosperity ahead. But Judah was still in this geopolitical sandwich, the meat in the middle between whatever dominant Mesopotamian power was and Egypt. And it was in dealing with this situation that Josiah made a mistake. It's easy to criticize, perhaps, but when you think about it, you can understand why it was so difficult in this time period for the kings of Judah. Judah's buffer state status, without God's protection, would be like every other buffer state you read about in history. They were always at peril, risk. They were always threatened by invasion. How often did Belgium and the Netherlands, these buffer states in Northwest Europe, get invaded by France or Germany? How often has Korea been invaded by China or Japan? Or Poland by Russia and Germany? We're even seeing this kind of principle play out today with Ukraine and Russia. Judah was sandwiched between two powers of the day, Egypt and the dominant power of Mesopotamia. It was in the perfect place, therefore, to be tested on whether they would trust God for the protection or in their own strength or own diplomatic schemes. Enemies surrounded Judah. First, there was Egypt. At this point in time, Egypt was being led by an ambitious king, Pharaoh Necho II, bent on restoring Egypt to its former greatness. You see, Egypt had fallen under Assyrian control since Esherdun conquered them in 671 BCE. But Egypt was never really pacified. It was very difficult in those ancient times for that to happen because they were so far away from Mesopotamia and it was easy for Egypt to, with its own supplies based on the Nile River and resources there, rebel. At the time, though, when Assyria came, Egypt was fractured into many different smaller kingdoms with different rulers. And so Esherdun was pretty successful in installing uh, rulers that were friendly to him. But they didn't stay loyal for that long, and eventually they rebelled. Esherdun died on the way to pacify Egypt, and his son Ashurbanipal succeeded him and spent a good deal of his early reign keeping Egypt under Assyrian control. 
He installed a vassal ruler as Pharaoh, Samtek, who's actually the father of Nico II, who we'll be talking about later, and had Nico II taken to Nineveh as a hostage. So Nico II was actually educated in the Assyrian ways of life. And the Assyrians were hoping that this kind of cultural connection and this hostage taken would keep the pharaohs in Egypt in line and have them more accepting of Assyrian control. But like I mentioned before, the Egyptians weren't truly pacified. And when Ashurbanipal was focused in subduing kingdoms to the east of his empire, Samtek managed to unify Egypt and break from Assyrian rule. So when Nico II inherited the throne around 610 BCE, he inherited a strong Egypt and he was very ambitious to keep it that way. The best way to keep Egypt independent was to make sure Mesopotamia was divided and fractured. It's all the same strategy, divide and conquer. And by the time Nico and Josiah were reigning, Assyria was in deep trouble. Internally, the Assyrian empire was fractured by sibling rivalry. We saw that with Ersadon. Remember, he had to fight his brothers for the throne. And that was back in 681 BCE. And this, historians say, gave him a personality full of paranoia. But he had a tough challenge. His empire was very difficult to govern, faced constant rebellions. And to deal with that, Ersadon planned to split the empire between two of his sons when he died. One son was Ashurbanipal, who would get rule over Assyria. And his oldest living son, Samash Shamukin, who got rule over Babylon. I'm just going to go with Shamash because that's kind of a difficult name to pronounce. Shamash's coronation, by the way, coincided with the return of the Marduk idol to Babylon. So you can see that Isardon is still trying to appease the Babylonians and heal that rift and try to keep them from rebelling. The funny thing is we actually don't know if what they gave back to Babylon was the original idol, which could have been destroyed, or as some scholars speculate, whether it was a replica. I don't think the Babylonians would have known. Now, you'd expect the younger son to be given Babylon, while the eldest son, the true heir, would receive Assyria and the rest of the conquests of the empire. That would be the more important part of the Assyrian empire. But Esardun didn't do that. He gave the younger son Assyria and the older one Babylon. Why? We don't know, actually. There's no record that explains it. But we do have a record from Isserdan's reign that shows one of his closest advisors, who is also, because this is pagan times, his exorcist, Adad Shumar Usur, being perplexed by Isserdan's decision. He wrote this to the king, quote, What has not been done in heaven, the king, my lord, has done upon the earth and shown us. You have girded a son of yours with a headband and entrusted to him the kingship of Assyria. Your eldest son you have set up to the kingship in Babylon. You have placed the first on your right and the second on your left side, end quote. So you can see this was kind of an odd decision. And it's too bad that we can't ask him why he did that. And we don't know exactly. But what we do know was that Babylon, the ever problematic, hard to rule, proud city, was still a problem for Isserdun. While he did claim to be the king of Babylon, Isserdun didn't actually use the title much based on economic records that have been found. They've only found one or two references where he calls himself that. So you know he's doing his best to appease the Babylonians and trying to not stir up a pit of vipers. And perhaps his plan to split the empire into two was a solution to that. 
even though Isardan rebuilt the city, made all these moves, even returned Marduk, he still faced revolts in Babylon. One came from a Chaldean leader, which he was able to put down, but it shows the Chaldeans here, a people of Babylon, becoming a stronger threat. And even in Assyria, Isardan faced some other internal threats, probably over this question on succession and the wisdom on his decision to split it into two. And as it was uh, towards the end of his life, we have a record stating that he had to put numerous Assyrian officers to the sword. In other words, he had to execute his own troops in order to keep the peace. So there was a lot of chaos going on Assyria at this time. In the last couple years of his reign would not have helped his paranoia because it would have been very unstable and dangerous. But somehow, and I don't get it, but somehow he thought Assyria would be better off by splitting the empire into two. But maybe actually he knew there was going to be a civil war anyway, and that at least he could pick the two people that would be fighting for the throne. And maybe the fact that the younger son received Assyria meant that Isardan knew who was the most capable of his children and would be the best heir. And if that's what he was thinking, that's how events played out. Because once he died, the two sons inherited their parts of the empire and then immediately went to secure their own empires. And then once that was secure, immediately went to fighting each other. Once Ashurbanipal was secure in the throne, he started limiting Shamash's influence in the rest of the empire, which meant Shamash knew exactly what was going to happen. He was either going to have to fight for independence or completely cave in to Ashurbanipal. So they went to war, and Ashurbanipal squashed Shamash. So it looks like the Assyrian king picked the right heir once again. But by the time Ashurbanipal quelled this fight and rebellion with Shamash, the Babylonians were also agitating for independence again. And it looks like Ashurbanipal decided to appease them by setting up a puppet king instead of claiming the throne himself. And the puppet king had a name, uh, Kandalanu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but you can bet with me that I'm not. Okay, Kandalanu reigned for 20 years, left essentially no records, which is so odd that some historians, one of which I read, actually thought that perhaps that was just a different name for Ashurbanipal. I'm not sure who's right, but it makes sense to me that it would be a different person. And Ashurbanipal, on top of installing that puppet king, left a garrison of troops in a city 50 miles away called Nippur. And these troops were there to keep the peace and also maintain Assyrian control in Babylonia. Which, when I read the distances, it's kind of interesting. All these machinations between Babylon and Assyria and the Elamites and all these people. And you realize when you see the distances that actually all the cities were pretty close to each other. Nineveh to Babylon was only about 300 miles. That's like the distance from OKC to Kansas City. So all that fighting in this few hundred miles, all this fighting for empire. Now, when you see what uh, Ashurbanipal did here, you see how carefully he is managing the Babylonians, trying to appease them in a way that didn't offend them, but still keep control of them. Ashurbanipal followed Isardun's policy of being more hands-off and just trying to do his best to keep the Babylonians from rebelling. This actually reminds me a lot of like the Vatican City in the middle of Rome. 
It was a city that had a lot of pride, that was very powerful religiously and politically. And the governments of Rome, once that city was established, basically had to leave it independent in order to keep their empire going. Now, all of these internal wars, these civil wars, drained Assyria right at the time where it was at its greatest expansion, at a time where it would need all the troops it could use to maintain it. And remember, a rebellion would be very costly. It could take years to subdue the rebellion and years for the Assyrians to get their army to march down, lay a siege, and put them back into place. And the Assyrians were handling and facing multiple rebellions in different regions at the same time, year on and year out. Ashurbanipal reigned for 40 years, during which was when Manasseh was reigning in Judah. His son and successor, Ashur Etil Elani, had to put down a revolt when he came to the throne. But his reign was pretty short, although he still managed to put the glorious inscriptions of his titles all around. And you have this one, his title being, quote, King of the Universe, King of Assyria, Son of Ashurbanipal, King of the Universe, King of Assyria, Grandson of Isardon, King of the Universe, King of Assyria, end quote. That's a lot of titles for a king that didn't reign very long. But he was very proud of his heritage, at least. Now, because there are very little records of his deeds and such a short reign, it's assumed that he was a weak king. And his reign would have coincided with Josiah's reign in the kingdom of Judah and would have actually coincided when the kingdom of Judah was able to expand some of its territory. You have another hint, though, of how powerful the Chaldeans were becoming in Babylon, in Babylonia, because Asher Atil Elani returned the corpse of the rebel Chaldean leader from Esherdun's reign back to the Chaldeans. So he's taking extreme measures to keep them appeased. But that didn't help much because his brother, Sin Sharishkun, rebelled and took over the throne in 628 BCE. So you have yet another rebellion in a civil war. And this happened during the end of Josiah's reign here. It's hard to know exactly if it was a rebellion or a coup or what exactly. I'll leave that to the historians to figure out. But as soon as Sin Sharshkun was on the throne, he faced the revolt from one of his brother's top generals who revolted right in the heart of Babylonia. Now that was put down quickly as well. But once again, you have another civil war draining the troops, the treasure, and the resources of the Assyrian Empire. And in all the midst of this chaos, Babylon finally took a big step towards independence. The puppet king Kandalanu died in 627 BCE, right when Sin Sharshkun was dealing with the revolt. And so for one year, there was no king in Babylon. And in that power vacuum, a Chaldean installed himself on the throne. A Babylonian record states this, quote, after Kandaluna, the year of Nabopolassar's accession, troubles took place in Assyria and Akkad. A state of war was prolonged. There was a succession of battles. End quote. So in the midst of all that chaos, the Chaldean leader Nabopolassar fills the void and takes the throne of Babylon. This was a direct effect of all these Assyrian civil wars. And we don't know if Nabopolassar played a role or supported the revolt in any way or not. But either way, it was a brilliant move because the Chaldeans took the throne of Babylon. 
In 626, the Babylonian records acknowledge Nabopolassar as the king of Babylon, and this is basically a declaration of independence from Assyria. But it still had to be secured, because even though he had the throne of Babylon, he was still technically under Assyrian rule, and was so for at least the first six or seven years of his reign. Sin-Sharshkun technically ruled all of Babylonia and had to recognize the kings in the area, which the record shows that he did recognize Nabopolassar. Not to mention the Assyrian garrison in Nippur was still there and could be a check on the rising Chaldean power. So, of course, the Babylonians, led by the Chaldeans, and the Assyrians went to war. two forces clashed a few times, but the Assyrians were eventually pinned in that city, Nippur, and besieged by the Babylonian army. The siege got so bad, the inhabitants had to sell their children to buy food. We don't know exactly when the siege succeeded, but definitely by 620 BCE, Nabopolassar was in complete control of not only Babylon, but of all Babylonia. That was the end of Assyrian control in that area for good. But what no one would have thought, including Nabopolassar at the time, was that the end of the Assyrian Empire was so near. Fortune favors the bold, as the saying goes, and Nabopolassar took the fight to Assyria, defeating an attacking Assyrian army that was combined with some Egyptian forces. And he took control of a significant chunk of the Euphrates River and some of the old territories of the Assyrian Empire. By 615 BCE, the Babylonians were even besieging Asher, one of Assyria's major cities. The Assyrians managed to relieve the siege and push back the Babylonians, but they were not able to capture or kill Nabopolassar, and his forces were able to escape to fight another day, and they continued the fight. Now, Babylon had not been able really to challenge Assyria like this in many years. But it was clear, even when they were now capable of doing that, that they weren't strong enough to take down Assyria on their own. But Nabopolassar wasn't on his own for long. Every power in Mesopotamia could see Assyria's weakness, and every power hated Assyria because of how cruel they were. They all wanted Assyria to fall. And so all around, Assyria's enemies were getting stronger while Assyria was weakening. And these other powers began to act as well. Notably, the Medes, a powerful tribe of people that lived to the east of Assyria in modern-day Iran, just north of Elam and Persia. The Medes had a lot of cause to hate the Assyrians. They had been repeatedly invaded, their border territory was absorbed into Assyria, and they were left paying tribute and taxes to the Assyrians. The Medians eventually were able to stop paying their taxes, and the free area of the Media, the independent area, was able to start to construct a strong and organized kingdom. This was ironically a result of Assyria crushing Elam and Persia earlier. The Medes filled this vacuum in modern-day Iran. Media was also, by the way, where the Assyrians deported the Israelites to. 
In 615 BCE, the Medes struck at Assyria, landing a serious blow. Their king, Cyaxares, led the Median army deep into Assyrian territory, conquering various cities and towns, sacking major cities like Nimrod, and even uh, reached Asher, where they were able to actually take it and sack it in 614 BCE. Most likely, of course, the Babylonians had softened them up, and this invasion was one reason why the Assyrians couldn't actually deal a crushing blow to Nabopolassar. So all these surrounding kingdoms were taking advantage of each other's uh, invasions and Assyria's weakness at this time. Now, Nabopolassar learned about the Median invasion, and when he did, he mobilized his army and raced north because he wanted to join in on the fun, you could say. But when he got there, he was too late. The Medes had already taken Asher. But while they were there, Nabopolassar met with Cyaxares just outside that ruined city and made a deal. The Babylonians and Medes would be united in their attacks against Assyria. And they were perfectly set up for that. They both hated Assyria. The Medes were in the north. The Babylonians were in the south. So it was very easy to geographically split up the Assyrian Empire in a way where they could keep this alliance. Now, we don't know exactly what the deal was, but we do know it was a formal treaty, and Babylonian tradition states that it was ratified with the marriage between Nabopolassar's son, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the crown prince of Babylon, with the Median king's granddaughter, Amietus. Either way, it was clear Xerxes, the Median king, and Nabopolassar struck a deal to wipe out Assyria utterly based on what happens next. Now, finally, the Babylonians had enough firepower on their side to destroy Assyria. But right about this time, Nabopolassar had to deal with the rebellion in Babylonia in 613 BC, which just amazes me just how much these people rebelled. Now, it doesn't seem like Shinsharishkan realized the predicament Assyria was in at this point. Maybe he didn't know about the alliance. Maybe he was so arrogant he was just blind to the threat. I don't know. The fact that his cities were getting burned, you would think, would just give a warning flag to him. But when you look at all this history here with the rebellions and cities taken and retaken, maybe he simply thought he could just take them back. So when Nabopolassar put down the revolt, the Assyrians, seeing a time of weakness for Babylonia, struck out and attacked, spending precious resources and troops and time really for such little gain instead of fortifying the homeland for what was to come. The attack failed, and finally in 612, the Babylonians and Medes were able to join forces and attack the Assyria homeland. And in fact, they also joined with a third power, the Scythians. The Scythians was a term given to the people that lived in the Eurasian steppe north of the Black Sea. And these people oftentimes migrated through, so the term could be applied to a multitude of different people. At this time, though, they would have seen barbaric to the people of Mesopotamia. Their military was basically all cavalry, a mobile army that was impossible to pin down and difficult to destroy. In fact, if it hadn't been for the Assyrian superpower, the Scythians would have likely raided Mesopotamia year in, year out. And if there was one positive contribution to Assyria's empire, 
You could say perhaps it was that they kept back the steppe hordes, perhaps the only thing more terrifying than the Assyrian war machine. Such is the price of much of what is called peace in our history. So all three armies managed to attack Assyria at the same time and bottle up the Assyrian army in its capital, Nineveh. Even the Assyrian war machine couldn't stand against all of those troops. The siege took three months, but the mighty city fell. Sincharshkan burned to death when the victors sacked and burned the city. Assyria never recovered from the single blow, which is pretty remarkable when you read the history. You think about how many times Babylon was sacked and recovered and then rebuilt. It always had a way of coming back, but not Nineveh, not Assyria. Their countdown to destruction reached zero. And boy, did the world rejoice. Though we don't know much about what happened in Nineveh's destruction, we do know from Nahum, a prophet of the Bible, what God foretold would happen. And so this is basically the only description we have. And it's quite the description. Here's what Nahum wrote. Quote, He that dashes in pieces is come up before your face. Keep the munition. Watch the way. Make your loins strong. Fortify the power mightily. The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like lightning. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. End quote. That's some powerful imagery of these armies coming in and taking over the city of Nineveh. Later on, Nahum writes, Woe to the bloody city! And woe indeed. The Assyrian king was killed in the slaughter. His brother Asherabalat II inherited the throne. Now, Asherabalat II fought his way out of the siege and was able to escape with the remnant of the Assyrian army fleeing west to an area called Haran, a territory that's now in southern Turkey today and right around the border of Syria. From there, he made an alliance with Egypt, with Pharaoh Necho II, which at first glance seems like an insane thing for Egypt to do. But remember, the Egyptians, they stay independent as long as Mesopotamia is weak. And even though the Assyrians had been invading them for years, even setting up puppet kings in Egypt, Nico II decided to set aside whatever emotions he may have had because a destabilized Mesopotamia was in its best interest. If they could support Assyria against Babylon, then they could destabilize the whole area and perhaps Egypt would have a chance to gain control. So Nico supported Assyria, which would destabilize the area and prevent Babylon from dominating the whole area right away. This was actually, by the way, the same strategy that Britain used in Europe for about 100 years that kept the peace there. So the Pharaoh sent an army to help Assyria, but the Mede and Babylonian alliance was still very strong and active. The Babylonians used the next two years, 611, 610, to conquer the rest of the Assyrian empire, thwarting any chance for Ashurbanipal to raise another army from Assyria. Basically, 
he was completely cut off from their power base and surrounded in Haran. The conquered Assyrians received the same treatment that they gave out to the people in Mesopotamia. They were deported and enslaved. In late 610 BCE, Nabopolassar, along with the Medes, are confident that there could be no Assyrian counterstrike, and so they finally attacked Ashur Ubalat in Haran, where the Assyrians and Egyptians were garrisoned. Now, those armies, the remnant Assyrian army and the Egyptian army, fled the city. So they must have been quite a bit smaller or at least very scared of the Babylonians and the Medes. And they fled to a city further south in what's modern-day Syria called Carchemish. And Haran fell in 609 BCE. And that was pretty much the end of the Assyrian Empire, although there was still this Egyptian army and this small remnant Assyrian army. And Egypt was still actually bent on trying to restore Assyria as a counterweight to Babylon. And so Necho II decided to personally lead another army, this time mostly of mercenaries, to aid Assyria in Carchemish and take back Haran. He marched up the Levant, essentially the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, on a highway that ran parallel to the coast and was used by so many armies and traders before him. And to his surprise, on this highway, he's halted by a king whose kingdom the highway ran through. That king was Josiah. And this is where the history returns back to what's recorded in the Bible. Josiah told Nico, you can't pass. And we don't know exactly why, but he was there stopping the Egyptians from helping the Assyrians in trying to keep the Babylonians down. The Bible recorded this, quote, Nico, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But he sent ambassadors to him, saying, What have I to do with you, you king of Judah? I came not against you this day, but against the house wherewith I had war. For God commanded me to make haste, forbear you from meddling with God who is with me, that he destroy you not. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him. End quote. Josiah, for whatever reason, would just not let the Egyptian army through. And there was something slightly threatening, by the way, with how the ambassador worded that message. He said that they won't attack Judah this day, which kind of implies that there might be another day, perhaps if Egypt won. So maybe Josiah was feeling a little threatened by that. But it's a difficult place to be in, as we discussed before, to be a buffer state and to have to make these kinds of decisions. Once again, you would have to seek God's counsel if you wanted any chance of success. How else could you pick winners or losers? On the other hand, too, Pharaoh is claiming God said to let him go through quickly, which is interesting wording, but was unlikely believed by Josiah or the Jews based on their actions. Josiah decided to ignore the Pharaoh's warning, challenge the Egyptian army, and it turned out to be a foolish mistake that cost him his life when he was only 39. Here's what's recorded in Chronicles. Quote, Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him and hearken not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God, and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Have me away, for I am sore wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem and he died. End quote. 
When Josiah's dead body was brought back to Jerusalem, that would have been some of the most tragic news for the Jews, especially those who believed God's prophets. They would have known what his death signaled. These prophecies said there would be peace in Josiah's lifetime, but now his life was over, and over much sooner than anyone would have guessed. It was about 609 BCE at this time, and the countdown to Judah's destruction started to tick down again. When Josiah died, many Jews lamented, including the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote the book Lamentations. The whole kingdom would have known about the prophecy of having peace during Josiah's lifetime, and now he was dead. Here's what Chronicles records, quote, And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah, and all the singing men and the singing women spoke of Josiah in their lamentations to this day, and made them an ordinance in Israel, and behold, they are written in the lamentations, end quote. So Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. There are five elegies that were each a complete poem to be set to music in the minor key, which is the mournful key. And these poems contain some of the most elegant poetry in all the Bible. Now, many scholars will actually say what was recorded in this book of Chronicles by Ezra doesn't refer to the Lamentations book of the Bible, but it's pretty clear. Here's what Gerald Fleury writes in his booklet, Lamentations, The Point of No Return. Quote, There is a direct connection between the Book of Lamentations and King Josiah of ancient Judah. The book was written as a response to Josiah's death. Almost all commentaries will tell you this does not apply to the Book of Lamentations. I'm certain it does, because otherwise that would be very confusing. This is clearly talking about lamentations that are written down somewhere that people can see. Jewish tradition says Jeremiah wrote the Book of Lamentations upon the death of Josiah. Josephus wrote, quote, Jeremiah the prophet composed an elegy to lament Josiah, which is extant till this time. How could Josephus be referring to anything but the book of Lamentations? There is a serious reason Jeremiah and the people of Judah were so intense in their mourning. God had given them some terrifying prophecies about what would happen to the nation after Josiah died. The people had not only lost the righteous king, but they also knew they were about to enter a chamber of nightmares, end quote. A chamber of nightmares. I love that line. And we'll see why the author used it. Now, these poems were prophecies of the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah, by the way, will feature heavily in this series going forward, just like Isaiah did in the first part of the series. So it's worth going over some of the background. He was called by God to the office of a prophet during Josiah's reign when he was 17. So this was incredible. He was pretty young. God told Jeremiah this, quote, Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you. And I ordained you a prophet unto the nation, end quote. So the Bible only records three men that were sanctified before birth. Jeremiah, John the Baptist, and Jesus Christ. So much of our mainstream entertainment in America is based on origin stories of superheroes. Well, here's a pretty incredible origin story of a prophet of God with an element of the supernatural, yes, but actually real. God revealed Jeremiah's commission as this, quote, See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, and to destroy, and to throw down, to build, and to plant, end quote. 
Of course, the question is, what is he to root out and to destroy and then to throw down and then to build and plant? Well, this is actually the main subject of the series, and we'll cover this in more detail later. But it is critical to the story, so keep that in mind. I love what God tells Jeremiah, by the way. I spoke of superheroes, and God not only gave him one of the coolest origin stories ever, he also gives Jeremiah some of the best encouragement ever and access to the greatest power in the universe. God told them this, quote, You, therefore, gird up your loins and arise and speak unto them all that I command you. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a defensed city, an iron pillar, and brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And they shall fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Eternal, to deliver you. End quote. Spiritually, you could say Jeremiah was like the Hulk. You just can't take him down. But it would take faith for Jeremiah to believe this promise because God warned him that everything was stacked against him. The power structure, the king and the princes, the religious structure with the priests and the Levites, and even the people would all fight him at some point. So this was not an easy job and he wasn't going to be popular. Jeremiah needed that power, though, for the job at hand. So this is Jeremiah, the prophet who lamented when Josiah died. Now, it's not that God immediately brought an end to the kingdom of Judah once Josiah died. You see that God had a lot of mercy for the next king and for the people of Judah. But remember, the track record isn't great, and so it's very likely that the next king would be evil, and that this delay in the countdown towards Judah's destruction would end. Any Jew following God at this time would have been praying fervently that Josiah's son would follow in his father's footsteps. And then he or she would have been deeply disappointed. The people took Jehoahaz, Josiah's 23-year-old son, and made him king, and he did evil. We'll return to that king later. After the Egyptian forces defeated Josiah, they were able to march up and meet with the remnant Assyrian army in Carchemish. And remember, they're trying to take back Haran and then use that as a base to reestablish the Assyrian kingdom. They try to take back Haran. They lay a siege to the city that has a Babylonian garrison in there. But the combined forces were either too small or unwilling to work together again because in the end they fled from a relief force sent by and led by Nabopolassar. They were only laying a siege there for two months, and then just like that, all their ambitions and dreams were gone. You never have a record of Ashurbalit again after this failed siege of Haran, so most likely he died there or soon after. Nico II had been trying to prop up Assyria, but that horse had been beaten dead long ago, and that empire was finished. Babylon, though, continued on the warpath and now reigned securely in Mesopotamia and was poised to conquer the western part of Assyria's empire and even challenge Egypt. And it was able to do so quite safely because the alliance with the Medes secured Babylonia's eastern and northern flanks. So he had a free hand in the west and the south to do whatever he wanted and expand his empire anywhere he wanted. At this point, Egypt was still the dominant power in the Levant that place that is basically the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, modern-day Syria, down to Judah. 
And on his way back from his failed campaign, Necho II is able to stop by the kingdom of Judah and retaliate against Josiah's actions beyond even just that clash. Judah was at this time grieving and they knew they were in trouble. And Pharaoh hadn't forgotten what Josiah did and he was going to ensure that Judah would have a puppet king that would stay friendly to Necho II. So Jehoahaz inherited the throne from Josiah, but he doesn't hold the throne that long, which is great because he is evil. Continuing on in the history, the Bible recorded that Necho II put Jehoahaz down at Jerusalem and condemned the land to a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold in tribute. Now, we don't know whether the Jews resisted because there's no talk of war, so it's likely that they didn't. Second Kings recorded that Jehoahaz was taken to Pharaoh, who was in Riblah up in Syria at this time, and put in chains and taken captive all the way back to Egypt, where he died. Now, we don't know all the details surrounding it, but perhaps Jehoahaz resisted paying the tribute, was summoned up to Syria, where the Pharaoh was, and then taken captive as a result. It doesn't matter too much why, because we know that if the king had sought God out, the outcome would have been different. Necho puts Jehoahaz's older brother Eliakim on the throne in 609 BCE, which implies that Eliakim was pro-Egyptian, and that's perhaps why the people chose Jehoahaz as king instead of him, because they wanted to stay independent of Egypt and didn't trust Eliakim. Eliakim's name was changed by Necho to Jehoiakim, which is such a classic move in the ancient world The whole kingdom would know they all served Egypt when they called their king by his new name. Jehoiakim paid the tribute by taxing the people heavily, which makes me also wonder that maybe the real reason why Jehoahaz was selected as king by the people was just a big tax dodge. Seems like human nature, even today, how many people dodge paying their taxes. The question is, though, how much time is left on the countdown to Judah's destruction? Josiah is dead. We know the prophecies say that Judah will face a lot of trouble, or as Mr. Flurry wrote, a chamber of nightmares once Josiah died. But God was merciful and sent Jeremiah to warn the king, the king's court, and the people to repent, to turn to God so that the direction of the nation could change. Now, when you think about that kind of job and the nature of it, you have to recognize how incredibly difficult it would have been for Jeremiah. You have to go to the king of a nation who's already suffered so much. A former king is dead in battle. The most recent king is gone in captivity. And now you get to tell the people that you are sinners and you need to repent. So you can imagine it wasn't the most accepted message. Think about someone having to do that with the president or a prime minister of a nation today. And no matter how small that nation is, you can see why it would not be a pleasant task. There's an early confrontation recorded in Jeremiah 26 between Jeremiah and the king's court. God told Jeremiah to go to the king's court, tell the people and their leaders to repent or they will be destroyed. And when the religious leaders, the priests and the prophets, those whose job it was to turn people to God, heard it, they told Jeremiah, you are going to die. They wanted to kill him. And they stirred up the people to hate Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, go ahead, kill me. It won't change what God does. Which is awesome. 
When the princes heard about all this and what was going on and what Jeremiah said and warned and how he responded to all the threats, they said he wasn't worthy to die and convinced the people to back off and they were able to protect him at this time. This was a dangerous job though. Someone else, a guy named Uriah, was prophesying and saying the same thing Jeremiah had said, apparently just copying him, but not directly supporting Jeremiah. And when the king sought to put him to death, instead of standing up to the threat like Jeremiah had, Uriah fled to Egypt, which is a clear action that shows he wasn't operating under God's direction or government. And the king actually sent bounty hunters into Egypt to bring Uriah back, led by a guy named Elnathan, which I think is interesting that he's even named in the Bible. He's kind of like this ancient Boba Fett, you could say. He brings Uriah back to the king where Uriah is then executed. So this is what the nation is facing and the kind of king that they have, a king that's not popular, put into power by a Gentile nation, a raiser of taxes, and having to deal with, you could say, quote unquote, bad press at this time with the prophet of God telling him to repent and the nation to repent. So you can see why he would not be happy with Jeremiah. That's the last thing he needs, he would think. After the Egyptians and Assyrians were defeated in 609 BC, the victorious Nabopolassar pretty much conquers a humongous chunk of the Assyrian empire and finally turns his attention back to Babylon. There he begins to complete the rebuilding program for the city. Remember, the city had been destroyed by Sennacherib and was started to be rebuilt by Isserdan, and now Nabopolassar was going to rebuild it at an even higher level. He was going to make this city befitting a capital of an empire. He began to build a new wall around the city. He started to complete the restoration of the temples, and he was doing this while he sent the crown prince Nebuchadnezzar on campaign in the Levant to mop up the rest of the Assyrian garrisons in the area. So in 605 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar is out in the Levant taking territory that was once under the control of Egypt. This was basically the completion of the earlier attack against Egypt and Assyrian armies. The Egyptian army is well aware of what the Babylonians are doing and they march up their army once again up the Levant to meet them in battle at that all-important provincial city, Carchemish. Jeremiah actually prophesied of this battle in his book. And it's some great descriptive writing, by the way. It shows Nico II coming up with all his strength, including alliances with Ethiopians and Libyans, and even the nearby kingdom of Lydia in Asia Minor was involved in this attack to try to suppress the Babylonians. It was a bloody slaughter for both armies. In Jeremiah's prophecies, you get this description, quote, Order ye the buckler and shield, draw near to battle, harness the horses and get up, ye horsemen, Stand forth with your helmets, furbish the spears, and put on the brigandines. Wherefore have I seen them dismayed and turned away back? And their mighty ones are beaten down and are fled apace. And look not back, for fear was round about, says the Eternal. Let not the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They shall stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. End quote. Jeremiah goes on to say that this is a day of vengeance from God, and it was a bloody day. Jeremiah recorded that the sword shall be satiated and made drunk with the blood of the Egyptian army. The Babylonians also record about this battle, and they say that not a single Egyptian escaped to his country. 
What they failed to mention, of course, in the Babylonian record is that they also paid a pretty steep price. Jeremiah prophesied that it would be a costly battle for both powers, but in the end, the Babylonians would be the victors. Nico's forces were annihilated, and it was clear the Babylonian army was going to recreate the Assyrian kingdom all over the Levant. They marched down that area, taking submission from the smaller kingdoms and city-states. Nico fled, and Jeremiah prophesied that the Babylonian army would actually come and surround Egypt's capital. So in the end, Nico's attempt, desire, and ambition to try to recreate an Egyptian power failed, and the Babylonians come and invade Egypt. But on the way down, of course, in the path is Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. And you can see that this chamber of nightmares is just starting to begin for Judah. A new master was coming, one that had been prophesied to take out Judah. Just think of the commotion, the news of a Babylonian victory and the Babylonian army marching down would have caused in Judah and Jerusalem. People would have to be asking, was this it? Was this the end? Was the countdown to destruction finally reaching zero? Jeremiah is there, though, to tell them revelation from God. And here's what God has Jeremiah tell them. Quote, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Eternal, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and perpetual desolations. End quote. He even gives Jeremiah a timetable, says that captivity will last for 70 years. Of course, the question is, is that desolation going to happen at this point in time? You get a little bit more of what happens here from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel states this, quote, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spoke unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. So Nebuchadnezzar doesn't destroy the city, Instead, he uses a lighter touch, at least compared to the Assyrians, which at this point in time, really anything that wasn't complete deportation was a light touch. Evidently, Jehoiakim must have submitted to Nebuchadnezzar. He was forced to pay tribute, which he used the temple vessels to pay off that were then used in Babylon, which is unfortunate. But in addition to that, Nebuchadnezzar takes all of the brightest and the healthiest of the children of Judah, of the royal line, one of which was Daniel. And then he trains them to use them in the service of his empire, which is a brilliant move by Nebuchadnezzar. 
it created a serious brain drain on the kingdoms that he conquered, which would make it a lot harder for those local kingdoms to get good leadership, which would also then lower the odds of a successful rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. And yet at the same time, his empire benefited from it because he could use the best and the brightest in the administration of his government. So that's what happened on Nebuchadnezzar's march in this area, on his way to invade Egypt. He takes the submission of Judah, he takes some tribute, and he takes captives. But the city was not destroyed. Now, you'd think, after this first deportation, this wave of captivity, you'd think that the Jewish people would be more receptive to the warnings of the prophets. If this was some kind of fiction movie that someone would write, you would expect someone to come in and turn things around. Judah would somehow regain independence and it would end very well. But that is not how history goes. It rarely goes the way you wanted. Instead, the people would not respond to the warnings of Jeremiah and the kingdom of Judah would enter in the beginning of the Chamber of Nightmares. Rewind Repeat, a history podcast, airs on kpcg.fm 101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on thetrumpet.com or on kpcg.fm. I started this series a couple of episodes ago saying that it's painful to watch your nation die. It's obvious the United States is in decline. And not just some slow decline, it's been fast. And it's scary to think how something like a financial crisis could end this overnight. Yet many don't even recognize the trouble this nation is in. Of course, those that do, a lot of those think that the nation can bounce back in some way. But you know that there is a point in every kingdom, every nation, every power, that there's no coming back. There is a point of no return. Has the United States reached that point? You can find the answer in Gerald Flurry's Lamentations, The Point of No Return, and you can order that for free at thetrumpet.com.